Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to Legal Face Off. This is, as Sam used to say, the last episode in April 2021. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome, Rich. We are not with our uh, moderator, uh, Joe, today. Joe is on assignment, but we are very busy today. We've got a packed show. We're covering the Adam Toledo shooting. We are covering whether the uh, Chauvin case should have been treated as a hate crime. We've got a very robust legal grab bag, lots of topics there, including the Sabrina, the Teenage Witch VHS scandal that's rocking the legal nation. But before we get started with that, we are going to welcome uh, three amazing guests, and we're going to look, Tina, at some takeaways, some questions uh, from the Derek Chauvin conviction from about a week ago. We are very pleased to welcome Professor Susan Thomas from the University of Illinois College of Law. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. We also have Professor James Nolan from West Virginia University. He is the chair and professor of the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, also a former police officer. Professor Nolan, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Glad to be here. And finally, return guest. We're very fortunate to have him because he's all over the media discussing these issues, including hosting his own podcast, Talking Feds, the second best legal podcast out there. <laughs> Harry Lippman is also uh, of counsel with Constantine Cannon. He's a former uh, Supreme Court clerk. He's also the former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Harry, welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Thanks. Great to be here. All right, so I just mentioned um, something we're going to talk about in a moment with another guest, but on 60 Minutes, I'm sure a lot of you saw the interview with AG Keith Ellison, who was the lead prosecutor in the Chauvin trial, and Scott Pelley asked him why Chauvin wasn't charged with a hate crime, and I thought his answer was pretty interesting, but what's your take on it, Harry? Let's start with you. Should Chauvin had been, should he have been charged with a hate crime? Yeah, you know, there's an analogous choice you sometimes make under uh, federal law. And I think the short answer is is no. I, this would be a separate statute about unreasonable force and a hate crime would have a much elevated burden to show that somehow Chauvin's you know, um, murderous uh, callousness was was directed at his race. Part, you know, just just an un, unnecessary burden to add to the prosecution's case here. Professor Thomas, what's your take on that? Because we're seeing a rise, certainly, in allegations of hate crime, particularly in the Asian-American community. We've covered that extensively on our show. And there's lots of, um, you know, many people are calling for these crimes, these alleged crimes, to be charged as hate crimes. Obviously, they carry, um, you know, stronger penalties. So what's your take on whether uh, Chauvin should have been prosecuted under a hate crime statute? Yeah, I think I agree with Harry. Uh, you want to, as a prosecutor, um, pick uh, crimes that you think that you can prove. And I think that uh, they picked three different crimes that they had lots of evidence uh, in support of. So I think uh, it was a, probably a good choice in this in this case. Professor Nolan, what's your take? Because you're a former police officer, of course, and I think you have a different perspective. Um, do you think there's any evidence that Derek Chauvin acted the way he did in murdering uh, Mr. Floyd because Mr. Floyd was a minority. In other words, would he have acted this way if, as Scott Pelley asked in 60 Minutes, if uh, Floyd was a white man? I mean, it, it's possible, but I agree with the uh, other guests that this is, uh, it runs the risk of, there's, there's just too many aspects to prove. And uh, quite honestly, the, it doesn't get at the nature of uh, this particular crime. Hate crime statutes were, written for um, a different set of circumstances. So I would, I would uh, say uh, no on this one. So next question about the trial is whether you all thought that the defense should have called Chauvin as a witness. Professor Thomas, would you like to kick that one off for us? Yeah, I, I think uh, no, they should not have called him as a witness uh, as 
most sort of lawyers um, in this circumstance are not going to have their client testify. It's a very, very rare situation. So uh, I agree with the decision that he should not have testified. Professor Nolan, what do you think? Uh, no, I think people wanted to hear from him, and uh, but I don't think it would have been a, a good decision to have him testify. Harry, what are your thoughts? Same. I mean, the reason why not is he takes the stand and you hear about 19 other prior incidents. It goes to you, to the last question as well, because he, he, he was an equal opportunity abuser and user of excessive force. Many of the previous victims were were um, uh, not were, were not minorities but the you the jury would have heard about them ostensibly to to um, evaluate his credibility but everyone knows in reality it would have been overwhelming case that he's done it so much he must have done it again he had very few cards left to play in that sense it was a hard decision because he was in such bad shape but I I thought he wouldn't do it it would it would just have you know they'd have eviscerated him all right, let's stick with you on this question. Sentencing comes up in uh, on June 16th. Um, if all of the if he served all um, three sentences and served them in full and concurrently, they would carry a 70 year sentence. But the presumptive sentence in Minnesota, according to their sentencing guidelines, is about 12 and a half years, largely due to Chauvin's lack of a prior criminal record. The state has asked for a stiffer sentence based on five aggravating factors, including um, doing this act in front of children and displaying a act of particular, particular cruelty. How do you think Judge Cahill will rule? Will he take into account, do you think, the high-profile nature of the case and try to send a message, given how much public pressure is on him to throw the book at Chauvin? Hopefully not. Hopefully he'll just do it by the, the book. But the book is a is a heavy book here because it starts, first of all, no chance of the 70 year scenario. He is sentenced only on one charge. That's murder two or murder three. It's the same sentence. It works out to about 12 and a half or 13 years. But and this sort of goes back to your hate crime notion. There there are aggravating factors. And if he finds any of them, any of them beyond a reasonable doubt, then under Minnesota law, the so-called Evans rule, he can go up as much as 50 percent. So he could impose easily a sentence of about 18, 19, 20 years. I think that's about what he will do. But remember that one third of that under Minnesota law would be in parole. So he wouldn't be it would be non-custodial. Professor Thomas, what do you think? Yeah, I I, I think that um, Harry is right that the sentence is probably going to be around um, twenty years. I I wanted to add that um, it's an interesting thing that normally the jury would have decided those aggravating factors. Uh, I actually think that that would have been the right thing to have happen. Um, the there's some law that permits the judge um, to decide once the defendant waived that. So I think that's an interesting uh, aspect that um, should be revisited um, in the in the future. Yeah, that's a Blakely wave we saw on, on TV where the attorney was asking him whether he agrees to have the judge uh, decide that rather than the jury. Uh, let's move on to our next question. I think Tina's got one on uh, on the appeal. People are expecting um, Chauvin to argue that the jury was tainted for a number of reasons, including the timing of the $27 million civil settlement. Only about 10% of appeals tend to be successful. How strong do you think the arguments are that Chauvin has on appeal and what percentage of success do you give his appeal? Yeah, I, I don't think he has a, a high chance of being successful on appeal. One of the things that you just mentioned, um, the announcement of the settlement, uh, it could have actually influenced the jury in the in another way where that they could actually say, oh, that they've got enough um, and he doesn't need to be convicted um, on this. So in any event, I don't think that any of the different Things that have been mentioned, um, uh, including Maxine Waters' comment, um, will uh, result in a successful appeal. Harry, what are your thoughts? Agree with all that on the, the the general welter of hey, there was so much pressure, et cetera. Maxine Waters would just have been duplicative of stuff from the beginning, where of course they knew it was a pressure cooker. He has one halfway decent 
uh, claim involving the the one of the three charges. But even if they're even if he prevails, it wouldn't change the sentence. So, um, you know, could have some collateral effect and he'll bring it. And but other than that, I think I think he's got a, uh, a whiff. Professor Nolan, we've seen uh, several new shootings in only the week or so since Chauvin was convicted. Uh, and in the last seven days, the Department of Justice has announced practice and um, uh, pattern, practice, pattern and practice investigations into the Minneapolis and Louisville Police Departments. What do you think we're going to see going forward into policing, given these high profile investigations and the Chauvin conviction? In other words, do you think anything is really going to change? Well, I hope so. I, but I, I do think that there's a lot of effort being put in police reform, trying to reform individual officers. And a lot of, in my research, I talk about the, the law enforcement approach to policing. The police get into their police cars, they go into communities to arrest people. They're looking for criminals. Uh, if we rethink or reimagine what policing could be, where the police are used in communities to build relationships, solve problems, and use uh, law enforcement as a, a tool of last resort rather than first resort. I think that this is the type of a thing that's going to change the mindset of officers. Right now, the mindset is influenced by the law enforcement game that they're playing. And I, that's why the punishment, if he gets 20 years, if Chauvin gets 20 years or 70 years, these things are going to continue as long as, long as the law enforcement game continues. All right, last question. We've got only 10 seconds for each of you, Professor uh, Thomas and Harry Littman. Uh, you think there's any chance that the three other officers who are going to stand trial in August were with Chauvin? Uh, Do you think there's any chance they're not convicted on all counts? Yes. Okay. Yes. Why is that? It's a harder, it's a harder case, I think, to make because he, uh, even though they're different charges, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the, acts by the police officer were seen on this video and he's the the bad guy and the other officers are seen as sort of peripheral to that although they participated so i think he can be convicted they can be convicted but they may not quickly harry why do you say yes because you said any chance so 10 20 30 percent yeah but i but i think i think i might they're going to try to plead out actually Professor Nolan, as a 13-year member of the police department, what are your thoughts on uh, whether the other three officers will be found not guilty? Quickly. I think it's, I think it's likely. I mean, if they, if they say they're following policy, uh, a lot of things that happened in this case, if, if you look at it, the police were following policy. And uh, Chauvin was convicted because uh, his, his role, uh, his, uh, his role in the death but if you just look at what all the other officers did, they were basically following policy, I believe. And I don't think they'll be convicted. Professor Suja Thomas from University of Illinois, Professor James Nolan from West Virginia University, and Harry Littman from Talking Feds, thank you for joining us on Legal Face Off. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. 
That's BDLfirm.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Another great segment, Tina. We're very honored to have a couple of great guests on a very important topic, uh, both locally here and nationwide, the Adam Toledo shooting from the 22nd Ward, uh, representing, as you see behind him, uh, several neighborhoods in Chicago, including Little Village. We've got Michael Rodriguez. Michael uh, Alderman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We've also got from Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, clinical professor of law, Sheila Betty. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to remind our listeners um, the story we're talking about, 13-year-old Adam Toledo uh, had his hands raised when he was fatally shot by a Chicago police officer, according to video evidence that was released last week. Uh, got a lot of local but also national attention. Um, Mr. Toledo is being pursued on foot by 34-year-old CPD officer Eric Stillman, who shot him once in the chest moments after he appeared to throw a gun behind a fence. Alderman, the shooting happened several blocks from your ward office in Little Village. Uh, Mr. Toledo and his family actually lived in your ward. What is the current feeling among your constituents about this shooting? Well, first of all, Rich, thanks for having me. And I just find it completely odd that you're calling him Mr. Toledo. And he was a 13-year-old boy. Um, his family lived several blocks from me. Um, the shooting occurred several blocks from my ward office, one block outside of my ward. Uh, the community is, is, is very upset about this in a lot of different ways. Uh, a 13-year-old boy was, was shot and killed um, after he complied with an officer's uh, requests of him. Um, you know, it's, it's tough, though, because I will say that our community has mixed emotions on this. Uh, the individual that Adam Toledo was, was with at the time did shoot at uh, a car um, and really was, was using Adam, uh, and, and that was unjust as well. Our, our community needs a lot of restoration of justice from a lot of different people. Um, and we're searching for that as we speak. Alderman, in the last seven days, the DOJ has announced pattern or practice investigations into the Minneapolis and Louisville Police Departments for allegations of systemic racism into police interactions with minorities. You're among the Chicago Hispanic community leaders calling for a similar investigation into the Chicago Police Department's interactions with Chicago's Hispanic population. What specifically are you looking for in such an investigation? Well, well, first of all, outside of the investigation, I'd like to say that, you know, I believe that we need major police reform. Um, good policing uh, happens. It happened right in front of my house several weeks ago when the police pulled over, detained and arrested an individual who was bringing guns from Indiana. Um, that's the type of proactive policing we need in our community. Um, we also need structural change in our police. Um, to have 70% of our consent decree not be implemented at this point in which time it was supposed to be, you know, it's completely unacceptable and we have to dig deeper there. Um, but I also say as far as structural change to police, it's extremely important. Part of poli good policing means that neighbors have trust in police. And part of, part of the way we do that is by creating police accountability that's driven by civilians. So I'm very much in favor of the, a new ordinance uh, empowering communities for public safety. Professor Betty, this was a, uh, a foot chase, as we talked about uh, in the wake of the Toledo shooting. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot here in Chicago said that she wants a new police department foot pursuit policy in place by summer. Of course, many have called for revisions to that policy for years. What changes do you think should be made uh, and why? Uh, thank you for that question. And um, I'm going to just add a couple of, of points there. Uh, the, the Chicago Police Department is currently operating under a consent decree and a consent decree that resulted from a U.S. Department of Justice investigation uh, that happened after the, the Laquan McDonald video, the video of showing Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke murdering Laquan McDonald was released to the world. The DOJ came down, conducted a investigation into patterns and practices at the Chicago Police Department and found that the department was, was lawless and, and racist. At that time, the DOJ recommended uh, the implementation of a foot pursuit policy and the city refused to do so. 
Uh, so under that consent decree, the city is required to implement a, a foot pursuit policy by July 1st. That requirement was in place before Adam's death. So it's important to know that the foot pursuit policy is not being put in place because of Adam's death, but it's being put in place because of the ways in which uh, foot pursuits are just inherently violent, escalatory police police tactics. Explain, I'm sorry, just explain a little further what you think the changes are that should be made and, and why. And I don't think a lot of our listeners understand maybe the policy and, and why you think it should be should be changed. Yeah, in, in most police departments, in many police departments across the country, including in Dallas, where our current superintendent came from, there are policies that will restrict the circumstances in which an officer can give chase and require an officer to do a risk analysis to determine is the risk of the, of the pursuit worth whatever benefit that may be gained. Um, and would allow an officer to make a decision about whether or not there were other ways to, to catch up with the suspect, other tactics that could be used, um, and that, frankly, would not have allowed a foot pursuit to happen in the middle of the night in a dark alley uh, because of the risk both to the officer and to members of the public were just too great. So I'd like to throw the next question out to both of our guests. Do you think that the police officer who shot Adam should be charged with a crime? Ladies first. Um, I think it's a very, very tough question. Um, I, I think that the, the way the law currently operates, uh, officers are held to what's called the reasonable officer standard, which means that in order to prosecute, the prosecutor would have the burden of proving that a reasonable police officer in this officer's position would not have perceived a threat and used lethal force under these exact same circumstances. I think that is a very high burden based on what we know right now. Um, I, I don't feel like I can say whether or not criminal charges should be brought, but I think it's important that any analysis of criminal charges really be grounded in the law that privileges police violence and that allows police officers to get away with a, with a lot of violence under the law. You know, um, it's a question I've been asked a number of times, and I think I come at it from a bit of a different perspective, not just in an understanding of law, but kind of an understanding of the way community sees these incidences. Um, you know, this instance, um, I, I agree with uh, Professor Betty. I think it's going to be really tough uh, in this instance to prove that uh, this officer, you know, um, should be held liable in the way you just suggested. However, I think there's a bigger question here. There's a more important question here. It's around how do communities relate to police and how are communities holding police responsible to them? Because taxpayers deserve that to have that accountability and that trust that their public servants are doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, the fact is this young man was shot and killed while he had his hands up and complying. There's something wrong with that situation. But more so, there's something wrong when Kyle Rittenhouse, um, a white young man, can walk around with an AR-15, shoot and kill a couple people, walk away from that without the police apprehending him, and then later thereafter apprehending him peacefully. That's the type of interaction um, and disparity interactions that we need to litigate at city council and across the country. Um, that's the question that I'm tackling with. I'm, 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 I'm wrestling with at this point. Last question here on Legal Face of Alderman. You could take this one too, please. Um, what's your take on the way that the Cook County State Attorney's Office has handled uh, this shooting and the subsequent investigation? Your colleague um, in the Hispanic community, Luis Gutierrez, former congressman, was very vocal yesterday in calling for Kim Fox's resignation, given that she admitted that she had not seen the video initially. And she's admitted that her, hand, her office's handling of this whole incident was... Um, was not very well done. What's your take on that? Listen, I, I'm, I'm interested in my community and what's going on in my neighborhood. And the fact is, is that if you broaden this out, in the early 80s, we had 500,000 people incarcerated in state and federal penitentiaries. We had a war on drugs, which really was a war on inner city communities, in my opinion. And now we have 2.5 million people incarcerated with no drops in drug uses or sales. 
that's that's a failed policy. We need to be smart on crime, not just tough on crime. We need to look at how we're dealing with our most violent criminals and making sure that those individuals are those who are keeping behind bars and individuals who might be in jail for uh, for, for 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 more minor crimes or because it's a social justice issue in which they don't have the money to post bail. That shouldn't be the determinant of whether someone gets out or not. I, I think the adult in this case was very wrong. He owes justice to our community. Um, I won't go too far in depth on Congressman Gutierrez's comments. I I haven't seen them as of yet. I've heard about them, but um, I'd have to study that a bit further. Do you think Kim Fox handled the situation well? You know, I'm concentrated on the fact that I think she's done a good job in getting low-level offenders out. However, I think we need to take a harder look at people who are committing heinous crimes to make sure that um, they're doing their rest- restoration of justice. Professor Sheila Betty from Northwestern Pritzker School of Law and Alderman Michael Rodriguez from the 22nd Ward here in Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Up. Please come back on the show on this very important topic. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Back on Legal Face Off, we've got another great guest. Uh, We've got Professor Janine Bell. She is uh, with the Mauer School of Law at Indiana University. Professor, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Great. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, I want to talk about a subject we just actually discussed with some other guests dealing with uh, Derek Chauvin uh, aftermath. And uh, again, on 60 Minutes over the weekend, Attorney General uh, Keith Ellison from Minnesota, who was the lead prosecutor in the Chauvin case, was asked by Scott Pelley, why Derek Chauvin was not charged with a hate crime. Um, and it was sort of an interest. it led to some interesting discussions. He didn't feel that there was enough evidence, but what are your thoughts on whether uh, a hate crime should have been charged in that situation? I don't think it should have been charged in that situation. Hate crimes are better for other types of situations where there's evidence of bias motivation. So talk to us about what types of crimes um, where you can prove that kind of motivation. Because to your point, what the AG said was we did not have enough evidence into the state of mind of the police officer to charge him. So explain to our listeners what you would have to prove as a prosecutor to successfully prosecute a hate crime. You'd want to look at whether the victim was targeted because of their race, for instance, and uh Evidence of that targeting might be slurs said, I'm going to go kill all fill-in-the-blank slur, um, might be evidence of motivation in a murder case, for instance, that the victim was targeted because of their race. Professor, there's so many laws on the books, both on the federal and state level, targeting heart uh, hate crimes. Why is it that relatively few cases are brought under those laws, and why is it so difficult to prove? It's not actually difficult to prove. You just need evidence of why the individual was selected for that particular assault or murder or whatever crime. So it's not hard to prove. It's just different than other sorts of cases. So to that point and the burden of proof, many have called for uh, a hate crime charge in against Robert Aaron Long, the 21-year-old who shot seven women and one man at three different massage parlors, staffed mostly by Asian Americans uh, in Georgia uh, back in the middle of March. To date, he has not been charged with a hate crime. In the wake of this crime, uh, alleged crime, Georgia lawmakers have passed a hate crime. Um, it certainly seems as though shooting, you know, women who are all Asian would qualify as the requisite intent to qualify for a hate crime. Am I correct? Or do we need more evidence? You need more evidence. 
um, there you have predominance, right, of a particular type of victim. But there was also other evidence that's rarely talked about in that particular case. For instance, one of the victims said, or the um, survivors of the massacre said, he had come with uh, and he wanted to kill all Asians. That isn't talked about very much in the press. Where does police reform fit into all of this? You were recently quoted as discussing issues relating to the trustworthiness or lack thereof in many people's minds of the police departments. Can you comment more on that? Police reform is an entirely separate issue. Uh, there is definitely lots of space for police reform because there are many lower level situations where the police abuse their power and are not punished um, and are certainly not punished. Uh, so there is lots of space needed for police reform. Professor, you've talked about the reason why hate crimes aren't prosecuted to the degree they should. And you said you have said that Quite frankly, it's because prosecutors care about their win-loss records and proving and winning a conviction on a hate crime is very difficult. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Well, if you don't take lots of cases of any type, you're not going to be terribly good at it. Um, so prosecutors are right to fear hate crime cases if they don't try them a lot. Um, they're not experienced in this regard. And I think that's part of the reason that they are wary of taking them. Um, but it's certainly possible to prove motivation. Um, so it, um, certainly if police are investigating it as they should, um, and you, know, you need um, experienced police investigating these cases. So um, do you think that prosecuting hate crimes has a deterrent effect? Again, um, I think one study showed that of the 900 and I want to get the stat right, uh, 981 reported potential hate crimes, according to a ProPublica analysis of hate crime prosecutions in Texas, of the 981, only eight resulted in convictions. I know you said it's difficult. Prosecutors don't want to take that on. But um, does it have, in your opinion, a deterrent effect on people who are targeting uh, uh, minorities? Unfortunately, it's way too early to know. Um, there is a lack of good data in this context, and it's really hard to judge from just eight cases whether there's actually this deterrent effect. I think we're going to have to see many more prosecutions before we can even think for a second about deterrence. That's Professor Janine Bell from the Maurer School of Law. She's a nationally recognized scholar in the area of policing and hate crime. Her latest book is called Hate Thy Neighbor, Move-In Violence and the Persistence of Racial Segregation in American Housing. It's available wherever you buy books. Professor, thank you for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com. Tina, our favorite segment of the show is always the Legal Grab Bag, where we've got seven topics, two great guests, and we fly through it all in a very, very rapid pace. 
we welcome to the show the host of a podcast called Hush Loudly, Introverts Redefined. Jerry Bingham, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And of course, everyone knows Bob Kessler from WGN. He is news anchor and reporter. Bob, welcome to the show. Good to be here. And he is also very famously a harmonica player. He has been for, what, 30 plus years? Yeah, well, since I was a teenager and I've been, I was last a teenager about 30 some years ago. That's about right. Yeah. Well, Famously, maybe, maybe not, but maybe we could twist your arm and play us out at the end of the show with uh, a little one of your favorite songs. Maybe even you'll write one for the show, the uh, the legal face off blues, perhaps. Okay, <laughs> I can I can hack that. With that said, we'll get rolling. We're gonna keep talking, uh, Tina, really quickly about the Chauvin uh, verdict. We just talked to a couple of great guests on that, and you know, obviously, it's like one of the biggest trials any of us have ever seen, and. You know, there's so many takeaways that we just covered. I want to sort of open it up and just talk generally for a couple of quick minutes about what everyone's, you know, couple big takeaways are. Maybe what is most impactful uh, on you now that we've got about a week of um, perspective uh, and what you expect going forward with the three other officers, the sentence, uh, the appeal, anything is on on, on topic. We've only got a couple of minutes. But for me, again, I, I think the... Um, the sense is going to be really interesting. I'm really interested to see if the judge decides to send a message to the public, given all the pressure on this case, to um, you know consider these aggravating factors and go beyond the 12 and a half years that the sentencing guidelines call for. So I think that's really interesting. I think Judge Cahill did a good job in not bowing to a lot of that pressure, but it's going to be pretty intense. You know, what are your one or two big takeaways or questions going forward? Well, putting my lawyer hat aside for a second, I just was really, um, I found it a very emotional experience um, listening to the verdict being read and then everything afterwards. And um, I think everybody sort of felt the collective sigh of relief here. Um, I also, I agree with you, Rich. I think also it's going to be one of those things though, where the work continues to need to be done. Um, A lot of People have written about this and we've discussed it a little bit that, you know, the work here isn't done. We can't just look at this one decision as being what is the only thing that needs to happen here in order for true reform and justice to prevail in the end. So it'll be interesting to see. And it's terrible that there have been a number of these shootings since the trial and over the course of the trial. And Hopefully what happened last week by way of the verdict is going to be meaningful in terms of determining the path forward. Yeah. So Jerry, we had the, uh, we had the other shooting in Minnesota. We had the Adam Toledo case here locally that we just discussed. We had another shooting in Louisville where the body camera footage was just released. So what's your takeaway on whether the Chauvin guilty verdicts will change anything uh, with regards to policing or prosecution of these kind of cases? What are your thoughts? Um, I think that it's a step in the right direction. Uh, It is so very emotional. And I'm just so glad that we have body cameras and people who are on the street willing to shoot this thing that we probably would never have seen because it's been happening for years. Um, I'm not really sure what's going to happen with the other officers because so clearly Chauvin was, he was just so casual and comfortable, I think, um, and very entitled in that whole act. And so I feel like he may get the brunt of it more so than the other officers. Um, But I do hope, and I think that he should, uh, I do hope that this is a step in the right direction and that officers think twice, but I know it's a split second decision. You know, it's it's really tough and I wouldn't want to be a police officer, um, but I hope that it will make people think differently uh, both sides, even when you're running from the, if you're the criminal, the running from the police, and also if you are the officer in pursuit. Bob, you cover these cases, of course, every day on on WGN. And uh, what's your take on sort of the atmosphere out there? As Tina and Jerry mentioned, there have been additional shootings just in the few days since Chauvin was convicted. I'm looking at my screen right now, some anti-police sentiment. Police officers are being attacked all across the country. So we've got additional shootings. We've got police officers in jeopardy. Will this change anything? And and Tina said that, you know, she she breathes a, a sigh of relief. Are we really able to take a deep breath because this stuff is still ongoing? It seems like it's going to be in the collective consciousness and be a stressor for all of us, especially the families involved, for a long time. Well, I watched 
almost all the body cam footage from a shooting, a police-involved shooting in Chicago from late March. That was released by COPA, what is that, the, the Office for Police Accountability. Mm-hmm. So I watched almost all of it. I had body, access to body camera footage from 15 different cameras from this shooting. It was a, a man who robbed a Home Depot and then injured a security guard there, you know, with gun with a bullet wound, and then there was a police chase and ensued. Actually, Channel Nine shot some of that with their sky cam, and they caught it a lot of it. They didn't show all of it on TV. So the body cam footage came out. It's re- you know what? This is where system the word systemic is really important because after watching all that footage, it is taking sides didn't really seem relevant to me it's it's so it's everything is so clean and clear after we read about it or what you know things in the movies we're so used to things being very um clearly defined and understood it's it was so confusing to watch all that body camera footage and very sobering um and so and i hear a lot of pundits talking about there there isn't such a thing as systemic racism and i think they need to maybe we need to get a better understanding not only of racism, but also of systemic and what that actually means. I think they're kind of thinking that everyone just is like a closeted KKK member, not everyone, obviously, but a lot of people. And that's what that means. It doesn't mean that it's a, it's a, I think it means to me, it means a lot of small, subtle things that accumulated together leads to the results we're seeing, you know? And I was just, I just came across something. It was the Catholic bishops society. You know, people also think like they, they want to politicize this, but the, the, Catholic Bishop Society of America, maybe I'm getting the, the title wrong, they had a great article on systemic radi- racism and and data on it. So this is not just like, a you know, I wouldn't exactly call the Catholic Bishops of America the most liberal organization, um, but they had some really, I thought, compelling writing and data on that on that very topic on systemic yeah, well, racism. To that point, I, I heard uh, uh, Ben Crump, who's a friend of our show, who's been on our podcast before, I heard him say something yesterday in his press conference in Louisville, really interesting. He said, you know, why are so many um, uh, black men being shot in the back, uh, whereas the police will chase a white suspect, not just down the street, but blocks and blocks through cities and sometimes across state lines, right? Yet so many black men are being shot in the back as they're running away from police. That, to me, you know, really hits home and says a lot. So we'll keep moving, though. Um, uh, there's a uh, Tina, yesterday the Supreme Court declined to hear the appeal of several WWE wrestlers who were claiming that they sustained head injuries resulting from their time in the ring. They alleged that they sustained long-term brain damage from being professional wrestlers. And the court declined to comment, as they frequently do, but um, the lower court had ruled that their litigation was filed too late. Of course, the allegation for many of these plaintiffs is that their um, injuries don't manifest themselves for several years. That's why the statute of limitations shouldn't apply. And generally, these cases are often um, dismissed. And by these cases, I mean ones brought by professional athletes alleging head injuries and trauma from their time either on the football field, um, playing hockey, or like these plaintiffs, uh, wrestling. Um, and they're dismissed because they are unable to prove causation. Right. It's very difficult to prove that after a lifetime of playing hockey, for example, that your brief time in the NHL re- uh, resulted in the injuries that you sustained. But in the in this case, the Supreme Court said you're out of luck because you brought the case too late. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Tina? Well, I think it's really sad. I mean, a number of these folks that um, have passed away suddenly I used to watch WWF wrestling, and a lot of them ended up be you know, going into the subsequent league. Um, a lot of these guys die very young, and so I do think that it's really unfortunate because there has to be some sort of a link, right? I mean, from a legal perspective, as you said, it's hard to prove causation, and it's easier to just sort of dismiss these cases on a pretty unforgiving statute of limitations reasoning Um, And it's also a slippery slope, right? And so that makes it really difficult because once you start deciding some of these cases, then there could be a whole floodgate opening of a lot of these different cases. And I think that it's a very difficult situation, but we've got a lot of guys who are wrestlers who are dying very young for various reasons, but a lot of them are claiming it's CTE. So it's a very sad situation, Rich. Well, uh, uh, among the uh, wrestlers who have filed suit are Superfly, Jimmy Snuka, 
uh, the Road Warrior, uh, Mr. Wonderful, King Kong Bundy, and Mr. Fuji. I grew up watching a lot of these. Yeah. But I'll disagree. Yeah, whole, I'll disagree wholeheartedly with Tina because actually I defend uh, some sports teams against lawsuits like this. And yes, it might be sad, and there's no question that it is a tragedy to develop CTE or other injuries. Um, you know, we're dealing with laws, and there's laws there for a reason, and it is very difficult. I think rightfully so. Remember, plaintiffs have the burden of proof, and they have to prove causation. And just because you worked for a certain period of time for an organization and you also developed an injury doesn't mean the two relate. You might disagree, Bob, but um, let me know your thoughts on that. I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on this podcast. <laughs> However, and I side with Tina with the sadness. I have not to say, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way too. Yeah, much. Rich, you must agree with the sadness. Like I said, it's a tragedy that anyone has CTE or any, you know, any brain injury, of course. What I wonder about, because I was reading about CTE, CTE, it was discovered by a doctor in the 20s or some 1920s, not the 2020s, the 1920s on boxers. And then it wasn't until like 2005, there was the doctor in, in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, I can't remember, Bennett Omalu, who Will, Will Smith played in the movie, right, right. who made the connection between, oh, there's this football player who had massive personality changes and died homeless and, you know, it was a horrible story. And so what happened between the 1920s and 2005 and now the 2020s? Did the medical community, did the sports community just not pay attention to this? Because clearly people were bashing their heads in various sports, including wrestling, football and boxing. So that's the part that I wonder about. I, you know, the legal part, I can't really uh, comment on in a, any kind of expert way, the way you guys can. But it just that's that's where I, that's what I wonder about. All right. Well, we're moving from that story, Tina, to one involving a piece of equipment that is near and dear to your heart, the Peloton. People are suing Peloton, alleging that uh, they pose a risk to users and especially kids and pets. Well, a lot of our fans know that I'm a big Peloton fan. My husband and I both um, have the bike and have been using it very religiously for about a year. This is about Tread Plus, which is the treadmill that they rolled out after they rolled out their bike. Um, last week, a class action suit was filed in the Northern District of California, U.S. District Court, um, and it's alleging that it is a death trap. Um, specifically, uh, the claims are that there's at least one death of a child that's attributable to the Tread Plus. Um, there's claims that the design makes it extremely susceptible to children and pets getting trapped underneath the machine. There have been some allegations around the nature of the advertising that Peloton uses to advertise the treadmill. Specifically, there are shots of a woman using it alongside her, her child. Um, there's also been Consumer Product Safety Commission warnings um, about the use of the Tread Plus as well. So, you know, this is one of those things where I like to put my common sense hat on. I'm the owner of two treadmills plus a bike, have had other treadmills in the past. My common sense approach is to keep my pets and keep small children away from an operating machine, whether it's a treadmill, a bike, or a car. So I'm not really sure that the Tread Plus is really all that much more dangerous than any other run-of-the-mill treadmill. Um, so I, I have, have to say for this particular case, I completely disagree that there's any liability here. Jerry, 30% and pets hurts by the Tread Plus per the Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, and they are calling for um, a warning to consumers for this danger. They're saying that Peloton is not adequately warning their customers, even though they're aware of this risk. What, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I, I really don't uh, understand. I, I feel like, you know, similar to what Tina said, it's heavy machinery. And just like with anything in, in any appliance or anything in your home or a lawnmower or something like that, I feel like there has to be special attention paid. I hate that this happened to these children. And and but I just feel like it's not the responsibility of Peloton. And if I understand, it is a little warning there. So that should be enough. Um, so I don't really have much more to say to that. I, I just I, I believe that it's not their responsibility. Bob, in your background, I see a variety of things that would cause harm to pets, small children, maybe even some young adults. I see a, uh, is that a, a, a drill gun I see in the background or a power? <laughs> that is a drill. I was doing a little remodeling, yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't have children, so. Yeah, you've got a drill out in the public, so 
Uh, I assume that you're not in favor of suing people uh, in this situation. Well, I watched the video footage of one of the children that was the, that I believe was injured but didn't was not killed. It was a little toddler who got caught under the the right the the treadmill while playing with it with his sister or something. And it is incredibly disturbing to watch, but. I think Tina makes a good point. How is this different than any other kind of treadmill? I don't know why Peloton might. What, it seemed like their treadmill looks like a lot of others, and this could. Guess what? Because they're richer. Because it's Peloton. Yeah, they're the hot company, right? right? Does exactly. that, is that is that so? That must. That's I'm imagining that must be informing this in some way. Absolutely, absolutely. Tina uh, Morrissey is upset with The Simpsons. Those are words that I never have said before, nor do I ever expect to say again on this or any other podcast. Go. Well, so Morrissey, who I'm hoping at least some of our listeners remember is the lead singer of the Smiths. I know that for those of us who recognize who Morrissey is, we're kind of dating ourselves. Well, Morrissey doesn't really have a sense of humor. He may have been musically brilliant as part of the Smiths. I still think How Soon Is Now um, is one of the all-time best alternative hits from the 80s. Um, Johnny Marr on guitar, that opening riff is amazing. But anyway, I can't say I like Morrissey more as a person after reading this article. So the gist is about a week or two ago, The Simpsons did um, a little parody of Morrissey. They didn't call the character Morrissey. Um, and Lisa on The, on the Simpsons was really into this alternative band. Um, the band was named The Snuffs. And the moody lead singer was called Quillowby. If you watch the clip, it's very clear for anybody who's of our vintage that it's Morrissey, the hair, the way he talks, the way he sings, the, the, the melody. It just it, it's very clearly Morrissey. But apparently Morrissey didn't take too kindly to this um, sort of image that he felt that Simpson fans were left with. Uh, what's really hilarious is that he went into this tirade both on his own and through his manager where he talked about how he was being that the show was being racist against him. And then he claimed that free speech no longer exists because he can't sue the Simpsons for satirizing him, which makes absolutely no sense. It's because free speech exists that the Simpsons are able to satirize him. But there were just some really priceless quotes um, I mean, it was a completely nonsensical tirade. Like, I don't even know what he was talking about through half of it. He claims that no hate laws are designed to protect him. He just doesn't have a sense of humor. I think he's probably feeling very confronted by the whole aging process. But what was really funny was some of the song names as part of this whole parody. Um, instead of How Soon Is Now, the song was How Late Is Then, Hamburger Homicide, and Everyone is Horrid Except Me and Possibly You, which, again, anybody who knows anything about the Smiths knows that this is totally about Morrissey and is absolutely hilarious. So, I mean, get over it, Morrissey. Why else would people be talking about Morrissey now anyway, right? I mean, no one's talking about Morrissey, and he should be thrilled that the Simpsons care enough to parody him I mean, if I was him, I'd be I'd, I'd take a, a, a still of that, you know, cell and blow it up the size of my house. I'd be so thrilled that I'm I've been Simpsonized. Right. So get over it. Morrissey has a history of litigation and uh, he should be thrilled. Jerry, what are your what's your thoughts on, on Mor well, I know big Morrissey? I, I, in the bed. I, I'm not familiar with Morrissey, but I just thought it was and, and I wondered, is it a PR move? My background is PR. Uh, Look how they, you know, maybe they saw this an opportunity because all press is good press. But I thought it was absolutely ridiculous that he would come out with this. And so my thinking is maybe it is like, let's take it. Let's take advantage of this while we can. And now we know who he, those of us who didn't know who he was. We know who he is now. All right, well, speaking of people that people speaking of people that other people don't know who they are. How's that for a Joe? <laughs> who the hell is Jen Shaw? And why is she why was she arrested? Oh come on, Rich! You don't know the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Come on now. By the way, how is there a Real Housewives of Salt Lake City? Isn't Salt Lake City the most boring city in the United States? How is there enough, you know, sex and drugs and arrests in Salt Lake City to warrant their own show? Well, Jen Shaw has obviously created enough of a stir that Salt Lake City is now on the map because of her. 
So, and they're actually filming season two now, Rich. So they're popular enough that they made it through at least one season. So Jen Shaw is one of the stars of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Um, the filming of season two is resumed, notwithstanding the fact that she was arrested several weeks ago. You really can't make this stuff up. So she was arrested a few weeks ago for wire fraud and money laundering. Um, both she and her assistant allegedly engaged in a telemarketing scheme where they generated lead lists of names of various individuals that were apparently the target of a telemarketing scam. She pled not guilty and then took to social media, like so many of the people that we talk about in the grab bag who either have an ax to grind or who are trying to litigate whatever claims are filed against them in the press. Um, but in any event, what I really love is one of these quotes from, um, from the complaint, which is, in actual reality, and as alleged, the so-called business opportunities pushed on the victims by Shah and their co-conspirators were just fraudulent schemes motivated by greed to steal victims' money. Because there's actual reality, and then there's fake reality. So in any event, it's going to be interesting. I mean, this is clearly going to be part of season two of the show. They've already made that pretty clear. Um, the question is, how far are they going to go in the storyline before her real actual litigation is going to potentially interfere with the show? The legal world is, is waiting on beta breath for the answer to that question. We'll keep moving uh, and talk about a, uh, another story that is uh, rocking the legal world. Uh, friends, it's a lawsuit alleging that Bagel Bites pizza snacks are misleading. Uh, the craft is misleading the public because the packaging describes the food as mini bagels with mozzarella cheese and tomato sauce. And the plaintiff, who is a Wisconsin resident, uh, alleges that these snacks contain neither mozzarella nor tomato sauce, that uh, the products are not actually cheese or sauce, that they're filled with chemicals and all sorts of blends. The company has responded that uh, they are, in fact, they do qualify under the guidelines to advertise the way they are. Um, and uh, the lawsuit says that as a result of the false and misleading representation, the product is sold at a premium price, uh, $10.99 for 72 bagel halves. I'm sorry. Um, which I don't know, is that a premium price for bagel halves? And more importantly, Bob, I mean, people only eat these bagel bites when they're high as a kite anyway, <laughs> like 3 a.m. Does, do does the plaintiff really think that anyone is really analyzing bagel bites to see how much cheese is really in there? You're just downing the whole box at 2 a.m. anyway. That's a likely scenario. I also wonder the, the time involved to file and be involved in a lawsuit like this. You could just go out and make your own version with right. the real stuff. I take my dairy products very seriously. I Some of my fondest memories involve, like, I was in Rome once, and I that they will, they will you know, give you, you can, at a restaurant, order just a big ball of mozzarella. I ate the whole thing. Now, I later kind of had a re regrets but still it's a fond memory so i you know i understand the importance of good cheese but to what degree does one want to um involve oneself in these kinds of things i don't know and what what's well, to be gained right well in italy by the way they would be completely disgusted with this whole idea of mozzarella cheese on a bagel but jerry you know we often cover these stories where people are alleging that you know a full cup of coffee is not to the top or a bag of popcorn is not fully filled or that there's deception involved in uh, advertising. Now, I'll grant you that we wouldn't benefit from many of the changes we have as consumers like seatbelts or airbags if there wasn't class action litigation. But come on, on the other hand, who cares if you know it's not exactly mozzarella cheese, even though one third of all mozzarella comes from Wisconsin where this plane filed suit. What are your thoughts on this? Is this frivolous litigation or is there something to be gained here for consumers? I think it's frivolous when you go in an aisle and buy anything out of a box and it's processed. I mean, you're not looking for real cheese. And I actually have a prop because here's some, uh -huh. stuff, here's some stuff that I love. And it says real sliced potatoes. Now, I doubt it, but I don't care because I love it. It's delicious. It's processed. And I eat it every now and then. It's a great side. So I feel like consumers are smart enough to know. But it, you do have to ask the question, why are they allowed to say that? 
So, you know, but I know and I think most consumers know it's not real. You know, it's in a box. It's processed. It's been on the shelf for a year. Right. It's a frozen bagel bite. How real could it be? Get over it. All right. Let's get to our last story. Uh, Again, important legal news. You know, we cover Supreme Court cases. We cover, uh, you know, important cases like the Chauvin trial. Now, this is perhaps, Tina, one of the most important stories we've covered involving Sabrina, the teenage witch. A VHS that was borrowed, allegedly. Now, the defendant says it was an honest mistake, um, but the allegation is that she borrowed this VHS tape back in um, 22 years ago, in 1999, and she failed to return it. And now she is she was arrested, or there was, an, there was a warrant issued for her arrest for failing to return it. Now, I know you're a big fan of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Tina, but how long does it take to watch that show? This is the, the you know the time before <laughs> before binging. I mean, you well, gotta, I'm more of a Charmed I, fan than I am a Sabrina the Teenage Witch fan. But be that as it may, you got to throw the book at her. I mean, this is a crime of you know huge proportions. I say throw the book at her, and let's also bring back the VHS tape whenever whenever possible. Well, first of all, I mean, I just think that this is in in, in a world where there's you know high crime and misdemeanors for somebody to actually like have a warrant for her arrest out for a VHS tape that like no one can play anymore because I think they stopped selling VHS players like a year ago. Um, I mean, I I thought this story was hilarious, especially because it was of all things about Sabrina, the teenage witch, but in, in all seriousness, I mean, I think that this is pretty outrageous, especially because she knew nothing about it. I mean, I know that some people may say, well, she's just making that up as a defense. I actually believe her that she, had no idea like who who wanted this tape other than the kids of the guy she was dating uh, at the that's time. All, that's what all deceptive criminal minds want you to believe that this wasn't a scam to hold on to that VHS rental for all these years. It was so valuable. Uh, you should go yeah. buy DVDs or you know what stream for God's sake at this point. Jerry, she said that uh, she had been let go from several jobs over the last twenty years, and now it all makes sense. That was disturbing to me, right? Because it said like fella embezzlement. I, I hate that that happened to her. Uh, I don't really understand how this happened, but is there anything she can do about that? I guess not, huh? No, like, could she go back to those companies? And I don't know. Probably a little late, but she can perhaps pursue a claim against Sabrina, Bob. Who knows? Maybe she'll tap into the Sabrina fortune, which, by the way, I think is rebooted, right? Isn't Sabrina back? That I, I don't know. I would never want to go after Melissa Joan Hart, but I think um, didn't the woman she said something she went to apply for a marriage license or something yeah. she couldn't get it. Right. And then I think she has to go through a process, even though the charges have technically been dropped. She still has to go through another legal process to get. What she has to do? To she has it. to. The process is she has to rewind. Remember? Oh, don't, yes, be, be kind. Rewind. Be kind. Yeah. Rewind. If Blockbuster taught us anything, it's be kind. Rewind. It reminds me of of the Seinfeld episode, right? The famous. Bookman episode where Jerry had been, uh, he held on to that uh, copy of, what was it, Tropic of Capricorn for 20 years, and then uh, Bookman came, the, yes. the library cop, and interrogated him, and he owed like 75 cents or something, it reminded me of that. I was in big faith with the Chicago Public Library. This was something, I think it was Mayor Lightfoot's idea, or she claimed it. Uh, Chicago Public Library no longer will um, has due dates, so you can keep a book as long as you want until somebody else wants it. Then they'll start taking money away. Anarchy. That like to completely turns the whole notion of a library on its head. Well, you do right now. I have a book out, the Gorgum Hass novels, and someone wants to. I've had it out for over a year, so and I never read it because it's like this thick and kind of hard to follow. But um, I have not read it, and I will not claim to have read it. But I have to. I have to bring it back, or yes, they will levy some kind of fine on me. All right, let's go around the horn really quickly and tell us, everyone, tell us what VHS tape would not. Would, would you be most likely of being convicted of keeping for 22 years? Tina, let's start with you. Stevie Nicks, live in concert. Okay, Stevie Nicks, good one. Jerry, what VHS tape might we still find in some drawer in your house? Some Probably Pulp Fiction. Ooh, that's a great one. That was a great one. <laughs> Bob? This is Spinal Tap. Ah. <laughs> great. <laughs> Will we be doing Stonehenge tomorrow? Um, you know, mine is, uh, it goes back even before VHS. I had uh, one of the first Betamax in like 1980. And there was like one video store in town where you could rent them. And my dad bought us 
Indiana, I mean, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the original, and I had it on Betamax. And man, I played that thing a couple hundred times. And I played that thing over and over again. I wish I had that Betamax somewhere. Might still have it in the house somewhere, but that's the one that would be, uh, be in my drawer somewhere. Uh, Bob Kessler from WGN, thanks for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Jerry Bingham, the podcast again is Hush Loudly, Introverts Redefined. You can find that anywhere you find podcasts. For Ben Anderson and Joe Brand, who will be back in two weeks, we thank Gabrielle Hadley and Emily Flores and, of course, Tina Martini. And finally, as promised, Bob Kessler, harmonica, uh, uh, the call expert, is going to play us off with the song, Bob Smith. <laughs> Nice. The legal face off blues. Thanks, everyone. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.